This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burns Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. up on our discussion of pancreatitis. On our last podcast, uh, part one of this two-part series, we talked about how do we make the diagnosis of pancreatitis, what are some of the clinical um, findings, what is the etiology, and and how would we image a patient with pancreatitis. In this podcast, I'd like to focus more on on some of the management issues of what we do in the intensive care unit, when should a patient go to the operating room, when should they get antibiotics, and when they go to the operating room, what should be the operation. Now, if you diagnose your patient with severe uh, acute necrotizing pancreatitis, that's a patient who clearly needs to be in the intensive care unit. Now, patients need to be monitored frequently for signs of end-organ dysfunction. They can be profoundly hypovolemic. They can have renal insufficiency, uh, develop shock, and hypoxemia. This progression of the, the disease or the deterioration of the patient can typically occur within the first 48 hours. Now, SIRS, which we've previously defined as a systemic inflammatory response syndrome, may occur sometimes over the first week. So your patient will get rapidly uh, very ill and then basically within five to seven days be in multi-organ dysfunction. Now, resuscitation of the patient is really the cornerstone of the therapy, and fluid sequestration into the third spaces can be massive, with about one-third of the plasma volume being sequestered. Now, what are some of these things we talk about? Well, fluid resuscitation. We've talked about fluid resuscitation in the past, but there's this issue of third space. What is third space fluids? Well, I, uh, I've seen this in multiple uh, textbooks, physiology textbooks, and on my general surgery board exams. Third space fluids are defined as fluids that are non-interchangeable with the vascular space. Now, we typically think of our intravascular fluid compartments. We have our intravascular space. We have our extravascular space. And that extravascular space is really the interstitial space and uh, the intracellular space. Those are our two main fluid compartments. And fluid moves from those three compartments pretty readily available. It'll move from intracellular to interstitial and eventually intravascular, or it could go the other direction. But third space fluid, again, remember the definition, fluid that's non-interchangeable with the vascular space. And we said that in a patient who has severe acute necrotizing pancreatitis, the magnitude of this fluid sequestration can be massive, with up to one-third of their plasma volume being sequestered. Now, I spend most of my days living in burn intensive care units, but approaching these patients very much like a burn patient. They're going to have massive fluid requirements. Now, rapid restoration and maintenance of intravascular fluids is essential. Using an isotonic fluid administration at rates of 500 cc's an hour are not that uncommon. Again, very much like the burn patient. Now, keep in mind that when we use isotonic fluids, that roughly in a normal person, one-third of that liter of fluid remains intravascular at the end of an hour. When we have a critically ill patient who has endothelial leak, if we give somebody a liter of isotonic uh, fluid at the end of an hour, only 25% or 250 cc's of that remains intravascular. And if you want to to go back, review with the other podcasts to go over that. Now, multi-organ dysfunction is common. And uh, monitoring of the respiratory, the cardiovascular, and renal function is absolutely mandatory. 
Uh, adequate oxygen delivery to tissues and prevention of splanchnic ischemia is necessary. How you go about doing that is a complicated process, whether you're using biomarkers such as a blood gas or a lactate or some sort of monitoring device for splanchnic perfusion or just measuring somebody's capillary refill. I would suggest that you use a combination of all three. You may have heard me say before that you know the more inputs that you get, uh, the, the more accurate you're going to be in determining somebody's um, um, adequacy of resuscitation. If somebody is hypovolemic or hypotensive from hypovolemia, um, giving them um, inotropes or vasopressors in the presence of that hypovolemia isn't going to help you. Um, you. Use of inotropes or vasoactivation should only be considered after you've assured that the patient has been adequately fluid resuscitation. About 10 years ago, I had a, a critical care fellow who had, had a nice way of putting it. He says, you don't step on the accelerator until you know that there's gas in the tank. Now, because ongoing fluid sequestration may be more pronounced in the abdominal cavity, patients may experience increased abdominal pressure or elevations and could occur. Now, abdominal compartment syndrome should be considered and assessed. Now, again, you go back to a previous podcast on abdominal compartment syndrome. The key word there is abdominal compartment syndrome. Syndrome. Syndrome means there are several things going on. We have now these... Uh, uh, Foley catheters that measure intra-abdominal pressure, and the pressure may be elevated, and that's something not to ignore. That's something to be considered and watched closely. But a syndrome means there are several things. So abdominal compartment syndrome is associated with an increased intra-abdominal pressure, decrease in urine output because of pressure on the renal vein and the vena cava, uh, elevation in the peak inspiratory pressure because of a decrease in diaphragmatic excursion and a subsequent decrease in pulmonary compliance. Those are the things that make up the syndrome. If a patient has an increase in intradominal pressure, but the absence of the other uh, um, uh, factors of the syndrome, then you need to not be so much worried about opening their abdomen, but trying to bend the curve back. Uh, and this is all overlooked. We get we just get totally uh, starstruck with the numbers, and we stop thinking. Now, while systemic circulation is being restored or resuscitated, um, local inflammation uh, in the pancreas will continue with ongoing production of cytotoxic mediators. This is basically the source of the fire. There has been some experimental uh, research that suggested that the administration of ethyl pyruvate instead of lactate reuse solution could diminish this inflammatory process, um, and it resulted in improved outcome in short-term studies. But this fluid uh, was only used in experimental trials and is not readily available uh, in the clinical application and, and maybe something we may see in years to come. Let's focus on uh, the respiratory function now. Respiratory dysfunction is a major component of the multi-organ dysfunction syndrome that we see in severe acute pancreatitis. Patients need to be monitored for hypoxemia as well as hypercarbia and respiratory failure. Um, and if either one of these occur, the patient may need uh, a ventilatory support in the form of endotracheal intubation and mechanical ventilation. Patients may uh, progress to adult respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS, uh, which can be associated with the pulmonary infiltrates, hypoxemia, as well as an increased pulmonary endothelial um, permeability. Uh, and this has been considered to be a um, contributor to early death, typically in the first week of patients with severe acute necrotizing pancreatitis. 
Most patients who have severe acute necrotizing pancreatitis will require at least some oxygen supplementation. And like I said, many or most patients will require uh, the use of uh, mechanical ventilation. I'm a big fan of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, uh, but this is a particular patient group that uh, is extremely difficult and perhaps may not be the best patient selection for the use of non-invasive ventilation. Some of the reasons for that is that uh, patients who have severe acute necrotizing pancreatitis often have massively distended abdomens, um, and, uh, and by having a distended abdomen, that will result in a decrease in the functional residual capacity, and they may not respond well to a non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. There's just some considerations. Some of the renal considerations in dealing with patients who have severe acute necrotizing pancreatitis, again, is the restoration and maintenance of intravascular volume. Uh, acute kidney injury occurs in about 23% of patients who have severe acute pancreatitis and is often associated with death. So clearly, um, it's something that um, uh, the intravascular fluid resuscitation and avoidance of acute renal failure. Now, when we hear these statistics re regarding acute kidney injury or acute renal failure, we need to be a little bit honest about how we interpret them because um, often it's not so much, you know, it's the chicken and the egg argument is that we hear that there's a large mortality rate in patients who develop acute renal failure or if we're using the modern term acute kidney injury with conditions A, B, and C. And the, the condition we're talking about here is severe acute pancreatitis, and therefore it is the renal failure that is killing our patients. That's not particularly accurate because if the patient survives the underlying insult that caused the acute kidney injury, uh, almost 80% of those patients will leave uh, the hospital with their renal function intact, not requiring dialysis. Uh, all too often you'll hear people go to families or patients will get presented to M&M and they'll say the family elected to make the patient comfort care or withdraw care because they didn't want to live the rest of their life on dialysis. Well, the reality of the situation is, is that if you treat and survive the underlying insult, in this case, it's severe acute necrotizing pancreatitis. If you treat and survive that underlying disease process, then typically the patient's kidneys will uh, return to function uh, sometime within the relatively near uh, future. So when you're approaching the family in that circumstance, it's not entirely accurate. It's not intellectually honest to say, well, then they're going to spend the rest of their life on uh, hemodialysis. That statement's only true if their rest of their life uh, is, is, is shortened by the fact that they're going to die in the next week from the underlying cause being severe acute necrotizing pancreatitis. Now, the treatment of pain is something that I used to think was pretty straightforward. Um, Albert Schweitzer said that people fear pain more than they do death. It's been my clinical experience, particularly walking out into waiting rooms of people who have had horrific burn injuries. And frequently, the first thing the patient's families will ask me, is their loved one in pain, not is their loved one dead or alive? Uh, but with all of the discussion now uh, centered on ICU delirium, we're stepping back and reevaluating the methods by which we um, sedate patients in intensive care units. We used to, without much pause, give patients large doses of benzodiazepines to cause uh, reduction in anxiety and cause an anti-grade amnesia. We give them large doses of narcotics, but we're now finding that this may be a contributor to ICU delirium, as well as an, a, perhaps a contributor 
to um, cognitive dysfunctions in the uh, weeks to months after the patient survives their initial insults and leaves the intensive care unit. Nevertheless, we all know that pancreatitis is a very painful condition, and patients who have severe acute pancreatitis should be provided with some sort of form of analgesia. Now, intravenous narcotics are useful and effective. Uh, epidural analgesics with local anesthetics may also provide some advantages, and I am a huge advocate of uh, regional anesthetics. I find them to be invaluable in my practice, and I'm always looking for newer ways to apply them. An epidural catheter with a local anesthetic uh, has been used in previous clinical trials, um, and um, they used it in a particular trial with 121 patients with acute pancreatitis over, oh, over approximately 1,500 days of observation. Systemic analgesics were needed in only 28% of those patients. The local anesthetic was tolerated well, with only 8% of patients having some blood pressure instability. The source of that paper is um, Bernhardt and colleagues. The title of the paper was Using Epidural Anesthesia in Patients with Acute Pancreatitis, a Prospective Study of 121 Patients. And that series was published in 2002. Some of the management considerations is focus first on nutritional management. Traditionally, the teaching has been that for pancreatitis, um, we need to kind of rest the pancreas and, and rest the, the enzymatic production of the pancreas and, and to try to reduce its secretions. And that patients who had a pancreatitis uh, should be managed without any oral intake, kept MPO. This on its surface sounds appropriate, uh, certainly sounds logical. However, randomized trials have shown no benefit from fasting or from NG tube uh, suctioning in patients with mild or moderate uh, pancreatitis. Without an additional nutritional support, patients' catabolism and reduced intake result in malnutrition. And again, we've had podcasts in the back that look at uh, modifications of people's nutrition. And, and basically, catabolism is the digestion of our body, making us weaker. Now, providing enteral nutrition support has many theoretical benefits. This includes a reduction of microbial translocation, improvements in gut blood flow, as well as the preservation of gut mucosal surface immunity. Now, many of these patients have uh, an ileus. They may have some nausea and vomiting. So then it comes into the real logistical issues is can we safely deliver um, enteral feeds without uh, having the patient uh, vomit or aspirate? The Cochrane database has looked at this issue uh, on the topic of uh, TPN versus enteral feeding and acute pancreatitis. According to the Cochrane database, in two trials of the total of 70 patients, the relative risk of death with enteral nutrition versus TPN was 0.56. The mean length of stay was reduced, and the relative risk for systemic infection with enteral nutrition versus TPN was 0.61. Now, therefore, Cochrane would conclude that there is a trend in the reduction in adverse events after the administration of enteral nutrition, the data are insufficient to make clear conclusions about the safety of enteral nutrition versus TPN. But clearly there is no smoking gun here that we're going to kill our patient by giving them enteral nutrition. And clearly the notion that by resting the pancreas and not using the gut provides some sort of physiological advantage is clearly not supported by the data. Uh, international consensus conferences on the use of uh, or the treatment of pancreatitis concluded that enteral nutrition uh, be used in preference of TPNs in patients with severe acute necrotizing pancreatitis. They also felt that enteral nutrition should be initiated after 
the initial phase of resuscitation. The trijunal rote uh, should be used if it was possible, and a TPN only um, be used when uh, attempted enteral nutrition had failed after a five to seven day trial, unless there is previous documented malnutrition, which you know, particularly the patient's got alcoholic pancreatitis, uh, that's clearly um, an, a factor uh, that they would present with uh, malnutrition. Uh, the consensus group uh, in pancreatitis also recommend that if you're going to go with TPN, that uh, the TPN be enriched with glutamine, uh, but there was no recommendation about the use of immune-enhanced enteral formulas. So there you have some basic ICU considerations of uh, the management of a patient who has severe acute necrotizing pancreatitis uh, as far as some of the fluid resuscitation considerations, pulmonary, um, as well as nutritional issues. Um, we're going to uh, take a break from that, uh, and on the next podcast, we'll, we'll address the issues of should we give uh, antibiotics prophylactically to a patient who has pancreatitis and then probably delve into some of the operative considerations. You've been listening to the podcast, Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Jeff Guy. I'm Associate Professor of Surgery at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. These podcasts are free to download off of iTunes. Uh, if you want to leave some positive comments uh, at the iTunes page, that is uh, more helpful than you would know. And we're also uh, finishing up an application uh, that should be available by now or available soon that will allow you to download uh, the uh, uh, podcast or stream them directly uh, from your iPhone. Uh, often we'll make uh, comments about referring back to uh, previous podcasts and that way you'll be able to stream that off the Internet uh, immediately. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Have a great day.